Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Gott Wittenberg Emerson. The Gott name has been leading the local commercial real estate market since 1899, making it one of the oldest continuously operated businesses in Amarillo. A lot has changed in the past 120 years, of course, but excellent customer service and integrity remain their top priority. Gott Wittenberg Emerson offers both brokerage and full-service property management services with a team of dedicated professionals to meet your real estate needs. Learn more and see current listings at gwamarillo.com. And as part of this podcast's partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout-out to West Texas A&M University, online at wtamu.edu. I'm a WT grad. The January-February issue of Brick and Elm is on newsstands now, or read the free e-edition at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Kelly Bullard. I've known Kelly for a long time. We worked together years ago when she was working for a publishing company, and I was getting started in the marketing and advertising industries. And as she mentions in this interview, she's gone through a lot of different careers. And one of the recent ones landed her at Bivens Point, which became an early sponsor of Hey Amarillo under Kelly's leadership. And I I really do appreciate that. But I wanted to have her on the show because Kelly has recently gone through a significant health crisis. And she wrote about it in the most recent issue of Brick and Elm Magazine. And she talks about this journey with a lot of honesty and clarity. And I really appreciated it. I wanted to give her the chance to tell that story and how this community walked through it with her. So here's Kelly Bullard. Kelly Bullard, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. I know you are familiar with the show, uh, and I appreciate that. And we've known each other for quite a long time, but I, I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests, and that's just to ask you why you're here. So what brought you to Amarillo in the first place? Okay. Well, my dad was in the Navy, and so I was born in Seattle, Washington. We traveled around a lot, so we lived in California, Minnesota, Japan for about three years. When my dad retired, he put in for two teaching positions. One was in Pocatello, Idaho. Okay. And one was in Amarillo, Texas. And guess where we ended up? Wow. Amarillo, not necessarily a, a Navy town or destination in any way. So no. what, what kind of teaching position was it? Well, he was teaching Navy ROTC okay. at Tascosa. All right. Yeah. So I was about 12 when we moved here. And you moved here. What was the stop right before you came here? Uh, we were in Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, okay. that's where my parents both had family All up right. there. That's pretty different. Yes. Climate, pretty different place uh, from Minnesota for sure. Yes, very different. Uh, the thing that struck me the most that was different, first of all, everyone's accent was very odd. That's true. Um, we might say the same of a, a Minnesota accent. Yes. They're they, both distinguishable. Yes, definitely. Uh, the word y'all took me a while to catch on. I did not understand black eyed peas at all. Okay. And I thought sweet tea was the nastiest thing, thing I'd ever tasted. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's not surprising. Um, although it might be surprising to people who have only lived here and experienced the, the delicacies of this region. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was it like moving when you were 12? Well, we moved around so much that so, I, it was normal. It wasn't a big deal no. to be uprooted and start no. like junior high or middle school new. No, it was very, very much the norm. Okay. Uh, it was kind of unusual being settled in one place for many, many years. So that was kind of the oddity. 
Where did you go to school? I went to River Road Junior High and then Caprock High School. Okay. And then when you graduated from high school, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you have an idea of a career? Well, when I was in high school, I was part of the HECE program, which was Home Economics Cooperative Education. Okay. Probably never heard of it. They probably don't still have it. I remember Home Economics. Yes. That was still a thing when I was uh, in high school, but yes. I, I didn't know that specific program. Yeah. So it was work work half a day, go to school half a day. Okay. So I worked half a day at the time it was called Pioneer Natural Gas now it's now Atmos Energy, I mm-hmm. guess. But um, they had a room called the Flame Room. Natural gas, flame. Yeah. And there were um, home economics ladies that worked there that would do cooking demonstrations and things like that. So I worked with them. Hmm. So, What was it like as a high schooler working at an energy company doing home economics? Like that, that seems... <laughs> This seems like a Mad Lib or something. You know, those things don't always go together. Yeah, it, it was it was kind of different, but um, I loved it. The ladies I worked with were great. Now, don't think for one minute that I learned how to cook because okay. I did not. Um, but we did some demonstrations for kids, um, school children, and classes would come. And that's kind of all I remember about it. But then after I graduated, I transitioned into working full-time in the office. So I was the dispatcher and dispatched orders out to the servicemen in the field. Okay. How long did that last? I'm trying to remember, probably a year or so. And then I decided to go to Amarillo College. And so I went to school and got... (laughs) Got a job as a um, part-time nanny. I was the world's absolutely worst nanny (laughs) in the world. It was terrible. It was not a good fit for me. The family that I worked for was so sweet and so gracious, and I lost one of the kids. Well, that's that's generally a fireable offense for a nanny, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They didn't actually fire me, but yeah, I was not. Presumably the kid was found, but it wasn't a permanent loss. Yes, no, it wasn't. Um, Yeah, so I did that for a while, um, then went to work at a Christian radio station, and I was a DJ um, secretary. Um, I transitioned into operations manager at one time. What was that station? Uh, It was called KWAS, which stands for Keep Wearing a Smile. All right. Okay, this, you'll be happy to know that was the 70s. So, I was yeah. going to say, is that, that station probably is not around anymore. No, no, it's still, I think it's country or something. Okay. It's 101.9. But at the time, it was a Christian station. Okay. And wh- where did your career develop from then? From there, I went to work at a doctor's office. So I was a receptionist at a medical office for about three years. And then when my daughter was born, I decided to stay home for okay. a while. Was there ever any part, since you had moved around so much as a kid... Was there ever anything where you thought, okay, I'm going to leave here and go back to Minnesota or go back to Seattle or go someplace new? I mean, what kept you in Amarillo after so much, you know, transitional uh, residencies when you were a kid? You know, that's a good question. And I think I was ready to be settled. I think, you know. That was attractive to you then. Yes. I mean, I didn't, I, I am an adventurous person. I like to travel and go places, but I like to come back home. And I think I was just happy to have home be Amarillo. What do you remember of Amarillo back in those days, you know, the 70s, the 80s? I I talked to a lot of people who, you know, maybe they moved here 20 years ago or they moved here five years ago. Uh, Not a lot of people, you know, grew up here uh, in in their formative years. Like, 
30, 40, 50 years ago. So what was Amarillo like back then? Well, we'd go shopping downtown. There were mm-hmm. plenty of stores on Polk Street. And um, there was some odd place that my mom would take us to buy our jeans and clothes. And it was called Bargain City. Okay. And it was spelled S-I-D-D-Y. All right. <laughs> Unorthodox spelling, but yes, okay. Yes, I have no idea why, but um, I don't even remember where it was. There was uh, Woolworths and, you know, just some of those shops, the stores from way back when that haven't been around in forever. That's what I mostly remember. I remember as a teenager dragging Polk Street. Okay. Yes, we did that. Just drive up and down Polk and see all your friends and stop in the parking lot and chat and, yeah. And what's implied by that is that your friends are on Polk Street, too. You know, that they're... There's a lot of uh, people walking up and down the street in addition to driving it. And that seems so foreign to what we've known of Polk Street until maybe the past five or six years. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was just the thing. It's what we did. Okay, so you've you've mentioned a number of careers, and uh, you haven't yet gotten to any of the careers that I know that you've done. Um, so I imagine that uh, even after you had kids and stuff and went home to, to stay with them, that uh, you, you still had a, a lot more opportunities. So what happened after that point? Well, when my kids both got in school, we have two kids, Jancy and JP, and they're two years apart. So when they got in school, I decided, eh, I think I'm ready to find something to go do. So I went to work part-time in a communications department of a large church here in town. Okay. Then it transitioned into full-time, and then I just ended up staying. It was just a good fit for those years that my kids were in school because I had some flexibility. I could go to their ball games and, you know be part of their school activities and still do my job. And so I stayed for about 15 years. Did the communications aspect, was was that because you had been in radio? You know, or where did that come from? I think I've just always loved communications. I think it's just kind of a natural gifting that I have. I love to write. I love to speak. I love to just, I'm really good at editing and, and, um, you know, proofing and editing things. That's kind of what I started doing was proofing and editing the newsletter and then just kind of went from there. And yet those are skills that not everybody has. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're learned skills, sometimes they're natural, but they're increasingly rare. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love doing that. It's kind of a nerd thing, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So um, it just kept, you know, it just worked out well that I could stay there. Once the kids were grown and we were kind of empty nesters, I was looking for something else. I was kind of restless and ready to do something else. And so that's when I went to work for CareNet Pregnancy okay. Center which now is known as Hope Choice. Right. And how long was that tenure? I'm thinking it was about six years. I think okay. I was there somewhere between five and six. And for people that they've <laughs> seen the newer CareNet uh, Hope Choice building, you know, mm-hmm. coming out of downtown, but, but haven't interacted with it, what, what does that organization do? The main part of the organization is helping with free pregnancy tests. They give free ultrasounds, help moms make the decision to keep their babies or to at least continue their pregnancies. Right. It's a faith-based organization. Yes, it is. Yes. They also have other programs that they do with with um, students and teens where they have mentoring programs to go into the schools and do character-based programs. So that's what I was hired to do is oversee the mentoring programs. Okay. And I really, really enjoyed that. And um, I remember when I was interviewed, I was asked, well, do you like working with young people and teens? I, was, I said, I, I don't know. It's been so long since I've had... I mean, I've had teens, but it's been a little while. Right. And so I, I don't know, but I'd love to give it a try. I ended up really loving it. And then I transitioned into operations director. So I was director of the actual operations of the facilities. Having so many different careers and different things, did you ever think, okay, this is 
this is the last thing I'm going to do. This is going to be the the place that I live out the the rest of my career and I'll retire from here someplace. Or did you always just sort of feel open, like, oh, something else might come along and I'll do that for a while? I think the latter, what you just said. Yes, I've always felt like whatever next opportunity comes, I'd love to jump on board. And honestly, looking back, I think 15 years was too long to spend at the one job. Okay, okay. I, I think I got a little too restless and I, I should have probably, you know, made my exit a little sooner. I think it was just a little too long. So I like having new things. Okay. What what did you retire from most recently? Well, I was at Bivens Point, which is a senior was a senior care facility in Amarillo. Uh, Bivens closed, but I went to work there as their marketing director and admissions director. Okay, and so that again was totally different. Like I had worked with young people, and right. now let's do work with seniors. And I didn't know if I would love it or not. I did. I ended up really loving it. I was only there a year and a half, and then the facility ended up closing. So. Can you look back at your career, and I don't always, you know, I, I don't want this podcast to just be a career story kind of thing, but it, it is interesting to me that you've done so many different things. Can you look back and say, okay, here's here's the spine of what I was good at. Here is kind of the thread that connects all these things together. I think what I've always found I'm good at is being a champion for a cause. So okay. I always feel like I need a cause, a reason to be doing what I'm doing. So I, I loved my time at, at CareNet, at Hope Choice. I loved my time at Bivens Point, championing the needs of the seniors in our mm -hmm. community. Um, of course, working for the church, it was very faith-based, our cause was. So I think I'm a cause-driven kind of person. Okay. There's a lot of opportunities to do that kind of work in Amarillo. I mean, there's so mm -hmm. many nonprofits, there's so many organizations that are doing work uh, that's based on an idea. You know, we need to fix this thing or we need to create this thing. Yeah. And I really, you know, since you're talking about all this, I really don't think I'm done. Really? I don't. Okay. I think there's a cause out there that I'm going to be ready to jump on board with soon. You're not uh, You're not just sitting at home in your retirement watching TV all day? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to ask a, a couple of personal questions just because we've known each other for a while. And so I know some elements of your story. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wrote about you, um, and I've, I've written about you a couple times, I think, at, at this point, but it was for a, a previous uh, publication, and you had read the book Wild by mm -hmm. Cheryl Strayed and gotten really into the idea of backpacking. Right. And, you know, of course, her memoir takes place in the Sierra Nevada Mountains, uh, Pacific Coast Trail, which is not anywhere near Amarillo. And I remember you deciding that you're going to hike part of that trail. Uh, and, and so we wrote about that. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit of that story. Yes, that is a very interesting story. Um, so, yes, I got very interested in backpacking. And my sister, who is always my cheerleader and always trying to cheer me on to the next thing, decided to get me a subscription to Backpacker Magazine okay. because I had started getting kind of interested in this. So I uh, get my first issue, and they announced that they're doing a contest. And the contest is to write an essay about why you think you should be the winner of a dream backpacking trip. So I write the essay, send it in, think, eh, you know, maybe, but probably not. And I actually won. Hmm. <laughs> so I won a five-day backpacking trip, and it could be any destination that I wanted uh, within the continental U.S. Okay. And I chose Pacific Crest Trail, just, you know, a portion of it. Of course, it's 2,000-something miles. Right. But, um, so the next challenge was finding someone to go with me because it was me and a guest. Well, my husband 
isn't that adventurous? He he goes hiking with me to Powder Canyon, but he doesn't like the idea of sleeping in a tent. Yeah, backpacking is another level yes, of it is. outdoorsiness. Yes, it is. So, you know, talk to other family members that are kind of like, eh, you know, it sounds like your kind of thing, but not mine so much. So I finally found a friend who was interested in going with me, and she was the perfect companion. Her name's Kelly Lukahans. And so it was Kelly and Kelly that okay. went on this backpacking trip. And um, it was just the trip of a lifetime. We had the best time. They provided all, well, we provided some of our gear, but they provided some too. They provided us a guide who was okay. very experienced, and she took us out into the the Pacific Crest Trail. We were actually on the John Muir Trail for part of it, and part of it is the Pacific Crest Trail. We camped next to, the, um, I think it's called Thousand Island Lakes. Yeah. And it's just beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful. So I have the most... Beautiful pictures from that time, and it was just like the trip of a lifetime. How how many miles did you cover on that trip? We did not do a lot. So okay. I, when I was training, I started having some trouble with my back, and 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 I have to I have to say I was in my fifties at this right. time. Yeah. So first time backpacker in your fifties, it's going to be a little challenging physically. So I had to um, lighten my pack, and then we decided to just set up a base camp and do day trips okay. from the base camp. So altogether, we probably over five days did maybe 30 to 40 miles, um, but we didn't do a lot of big mileage. I mean, honestly, to someone who doesn't backpack, you know, if there's a listener who hears you say, well, we did 30 to 40 miles, you know, their jaws dropping because (laughs) nobody walks 30 to 40 miles, you know, in a day or in a week in Amarillo. Right. That's a fairly, you know, average kind of distance if you're going on a a serious trek or a backpacking trip or something like that. So. What's something that you maybe that you learned about yourself during that period? Uh, because it, you know you can hike anywhere, you can hike in Paladar Canyon, but going to mountains like that, trails like that, is very very different. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I think I I learned um, partly that I just have this tendency to when it gets down to the the final, here it is, we got to do it. I panic and think I can't do it. Hmm. And so I second guess myself. So I had a lot of second guessing right there at the end when we were like ready to get on the plane and fly to California. And my husband was like, just do it. Just get in there and do it. And it's like, okay. Because all the what ifs, what if I get out there on the trail and I get injured or I just, I can't, you know, I just pick up the pack and say, I can't, it just hurts too much. I can't. What then? He was like, get on the plane and fly home. Yeah. <laughs> Not that hard. <laughs> it's a free trip anyway, right? Yeah, right, right. So uh, after all the second guessing and the doubting myself, it's like, I, I can do this. And I do have the determination that I can get out there and push myself and do it. And it was just so beautiful and so peaceful and just this incredible beauty that you couldn't see any other way. There's no way you can drive to right, this lake. Right, right. Well, oh, and the Sierra Nevadas are very different from the Rocky Mountains. Yes. I mean, you think, well, mountains are mountains, but it's not the same. The no. rocks are different. The vegetation's different. Yes. Yeah, it is. Did that interest in backpacking stay with you, like, after that experience? Did you do other trips? Uh, I'm sad to say we did not do any more backpacking okay. trips. So one and done sort yeah. of thing? <laughs> <laughs> did that one, check it off the list. But we did, um, Kelly and I, a few years later, decided to do another big trip together. So it wasn't backpacking, but we did a trip to the Redwoods in California. Oh, yeah. And we did it through a, a company that provides all the gear. And so we did hiking and biking and and kayaking. Okay. And we slept in tents. So they actually set up tents for us. And so that was very enjoyable. 
I know that another magazine-related story is a more recent one because you wrote for uh, Brick and Elm, this most recent issue, about your cancer journey and recovery from that, going through that, the things you sort of learned in the process of that. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit, you know, just a about that part of your story, what the last, you know, two or three years have been like for you. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So it was April of 2021. And my husband and I were hiking at Powder Canyon, which is a very normal thing for us. And I had been noticing I was having some issues with my left foot, it just wasn't cooperating it would do this spastic kind of jerking thing. And we got up on this ridge of the canyon, and I couldn't get down. Hmm. And so without assistance. And so um, my husband finally was like, you need to go get this checked out. Yeah. So I went to the doctor and he um, said, eh, you know, we could get you to a neurologist. Um, I don't think it's anything really, but let's just do a, a brain MRI and just kind of get a baseline, see what's going on. So a couple of days later, I got a call back from his office and they said, the doctor wants you to come in and talk to him. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. It was good news. Good. They'd tell you that over the phone. Right, 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 right. So uh, we went in and my family doctor is Dr. Alan Keister. And I think he's a wonderful man. And if anybody has to break bad news to you, you want Alan Keister to do it. So he explained to me that I had this uh, brain tumor. It's a meningioma. And um, it was pretty large and needed to be surgically removed. But what I remember the most about that, I had like no emotion. I wasn't upset or crying. I just, I was, I think, in shock. But he just would reach over and pat me on the knee and he'd say, well, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. And he was just so encouraging and, and helpful in that regard. And so um, we had the journey of deciding where I was going to go for surgery. We opted to go to Dallas to have it surgically removed. And um, that surgery actually went well. It was in June and uh, came back home and they had gotten the majority of it. But then it turns out... So meningiomas are usually benign, mm -hmm. but mine was atypical. Okay. So because it was atypical, it was kind of pushing the edge of being cancer. And they wanted me to go ahead and have radiation treatments. So we uh, arranged to have that done also there in Dallas. It was six weeks of treatments, supposed to be six weeks, five days a week for 30 treatments total. So we pulled our travel trailer down to Dallas and found this cute little RV park called Good Luck RV. And uh, the people there were fabulous, and we started treatments and everything. I started treatments. Everything was going fine until I developed a fever and chills and thought I had COVID. Hmm. So they tested me for COVID and said, no, it's not that, but something's going on. We're going to have to halt your treatments for a little bit. So I came back home thinking, well, it'll pass. You know, give it a few days. And within a few days, I had become much worse. So we ended up at the emergency room and found out I had a brain infection that was post-surgical for some reason. Yeah. What are the symptoms of a brain infection? Because it's it's something that catches my attention that you thought, well, maybe I have COVID. And it's like, no, your your brain is is dealing with this stuff. Like, what did that cause like within your body? Well, at first it just starts out like kind of like COVID symptoms, just fever, pretty low-grade fever, maybe 101, 102. Um chills, achy all over. You just feel sick all over. And what finally tipped us off that it was something worse than that is that I lost the use of my left arm. Hmm. It just locked against my body and I couldn't get it to do anything. And then I started not being able to walk. And by then it was like, oh, this is really bad. Yeah, <laughs> We got to get somewhere and get this taken care of. So yeah. 
what was the next step then? Uh, so I'm in the emergency room and there's that was here in Amarillo. Yes, here in hit BSA. And they said, well, we've got to get you back to Dallas. They've got to do another surgery. So um, they are arranging for me to get medical transport by plane to Dallas. In the meantime, of course, it's July and all these thunderstorms are rolling into Dallas and they shut down the airport and we can't fly. Hmm. So now they're looking for ground transportation to get me to Dallas. And I'm so thankful that didn't work out because I can't imagine riding in an ambulance all the way to Dallas. Was it was it like a a life or death kind of thing? Like, I mean, was time it was, really important? Well, it was fairly critical. Now, the, it needed to happen within hours, okay. I would say, from what I understand. I mean, I they kept me sedated. I was having morphine and, you know, I was... By that point, couldn't get out of bed. You weren't part of the decision-making, I guess. Uh, yeah. No, the doctors were deciding and my husband. And yeah, in the meantime, the thunderstorms cleared. They couldn't find ground transportation, thank the Lord. And so <laughs> thunderstorms cleared, plane was cleared to go. They came and got me, flew me to Dallas, um, got there, probably got to the hospital about 3 a.m. And I think surgery was about 8. Hmm. So yeah, they got in and got all the infection cleaned out and... That all went fairly well, except for the fact that when I woke up from surgery, I couldn't move my left leg or left arm. So, and nobody was sure if that was going to stay that way or if it was going to clear up. So that was the scary part. And, you know, I, I, I have some experience with brain surgeries, having gone through that with, with my dad, you know, and, and one surgery was like your first one. It was fine. It went well. And we were super hopeful. And then the second surgery just was weird, you know, and strange things happened at after it the the way that it impacts your movement your thinking your emotions like all those things and i yeah. i feel like there's just so much that we still don't know medically about what the brain does and how it works mm-hmm. um and so you you wake up from that surgery and you don't you don't feel right is is that pretty accurate like you're like yeah. oh say something something's not right here. yes definitely and also when i had the first surgery Um, the tumor had grown into the bone on the top of my head. So they had replaced the bone with a titanium patch. Okay. When they did the second surgery, they had to leave the titanium patch out because of the infection. So I had no bone in the top of my head. So that was kind of weird. Soft spot. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Very much like, yeah, baby soft spot. So that felt weird. Um, Yeah. And just they come in every hour to do a neuro check on you and say, okay, now let's wiggle the toes. And I'd look at my toes and think, come on, come on, baby, let's do this. And nothing's happening. And try to move your arm. So my arm was just, it had no muscle tone. It was just a dangling piece of meat, basically, Mm. is what it felt like. That was not fun. Uh, Yeah. And so we just, it was that way for about five days. Um, they kept, you know, they'd come in, therapy would come in and try to work with me a little bit. Here's the interesting thing. So the connection had been lost. My brain just wasn't, the signals were not going through to my arm and my leg. So the therapist told me, what you do is look at your left arm, rub it and massage it with your right hand and say, this is my arm. This is my left arm. This is something I can use. And it's part of my body. And it's just telling your brain to reconnect the signals yeah. to your arm, which I thought was kind of weird at first, but I thought, I'll do it. You're whatever. like, if my brain works well enough to 
form those sentences and do those motions, it ought to at least recognize that there's a, a piece of the body down here. Yes, yes. So I did that. And um, and they would every day work with me a little bit, just get me standing and kind of rocking back and forth, trying to put weight on it. They said weight bearing is what makes it connect. Hmm. So I would push on the arm and, and put weight on it, trying to get it to connect. So it was day five that I woke up that morning and I was looking at my hand and just trying. And funny thing is, when you're trying to make your brain send a signal to some part of your body, it hurts your brain. You feel physical pain. Like fatigue too, yes, right? it's wearing it out. It's making it tired. So I was so tired the night before, I thought, if I just could sleep tonight and really get rested, I think tomorrow I might be able to do something. I just had this hope, a little bit of hope. Next morning, I could just do this one tiny little motion. It was just the thumb Touching and the finger. Touching your fingers together. Yes, and that's all I could do, but it was something. But that was more than yeah. you'd been able to do. Yeah. It was like, okay, we have made connection again. This is this is a positive. So from there, it just every day got a little better. I was able to do a little bit more, and it was very gradual. But How long was that recovery process, you know, teaching teaching your brain again to recognize your arm and leg and, yeah, it and was all those muscles. About two weeks. I was okay. in the therapy hospital for about two weeks. And yeah, I don't remember a lot of specifics about how quickly it progressed, but I know the fine motor skills are the last ones to come mm -hmm. back. So they would have me walking and I could walk first with a walker mm -hmm. and then use a arm crutch. And uh, finally, they'd just have me walking on my own. But these little fine motor skills, like picking up little beads and putting them in a little thing, and, you know, that was slow coming back, mm. just the little pincher motions with your fingers. So you, you were in a rehab facility, I guess, for a couple of weeks there in uh -huh. Dallas. Did you come home after that and yes. just continue your rehab here? Yes. Yes, I just came home. And, um, yeah, really, it got to the point it was just kind of time after okay. that. Um, but I did work every day, you know, walking and doing all the exercises they gave me. And, um, yeah, eventually everything became normal. How long was it until you felt normal? Actually. Or do you feel normal now? <laughs> like, I mean, do you, do you, when you talk to people, do you say, okay, I'm fully recovered from this, this weird thing? Or do you still have some lingering stuff? I still have a little bit of lingering stuff. Now, um, of course, I went for six months with no bone in the top of my head. And so I had to wear a ball cap everywhere okay. I went. Did you wear like a helmet or anything? To well, the ball cap had a plastic had a, okay. piece that slipped inside So it, it. was protective, yes. not just... Yes, right. yeah. I had the reconstruction surgery in April of this last year, 2022. Okay. So just, just several months ago. I think after that third surgery, I was expecting to really bounce back and woohoo, I'm normal now. Uh, the third surgery really took me down. Hmm. And I think it's just because of three major surgeries in 10 months. It's, it's just a lot. lot it's a lot of trauma yeah. for a brain. Yes, and a lot for your body to go through. So it took me a while to recover. And then after that third surgery, a few days after I got home, I had a seizure, which was kind of unexpected. So then they had to put me on an anti-seizure medication. And so I think the medication might have caused me some fatigue and little slow on the recovery. I would say right now, I would say 98%. Okay. 
I feel like I'm just just about there. I, I will have some lingering effects that they don't think I'll ever go away. Um, just a little bit of weakness on the left side. Mm-hmm. It's not noticeable to most people, but um, sometimes I have like motor delay when I'm tired. It's like I know my brain is sending a signal to my leg to move, but it like takes it a half second to, to do it. It's just a little off. Does it feel a little bit like a limp or like you're dragging the leg yes, more than you intend yes. to? And it gets numb too. I can't mm. feel it sometimes. Sometimes it's just numbness and weakness. But, you know, that is a small thing yeah. compared to what, everything I've been through. One of the things that I appreciated in the article you wrote for the magazine is you talked about how you feel lucky, how how you've gone through these very traumatic surgeries and unexpected events, whether it's an infection or uh, a seizure, that you've gone through the entire um, scenario of what friends and family say to you, whether they're they're praying for you or they're asking if you feel like, you know, you've been healed or, you know, you just scraped through and the universe kind of protected you. And you've, you've experienced all of that and you've had to deal with all of that. And you talked in the article about here's what you really need to say to people who are going through something like like you've gone through. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Because I thought it was especially <laughs> meaningful knowing that you come from a background of faith and you've worked in those environments. But like those purely faith-driven statements are not always helpful to some people. Uh, yes, I have to agree with you. And um, yeah, it was... There were so many people that reached out to Steve and I and to, you know, just say, we're praying for you and, you know, what can we do to help? And gosh, that was amazing. And it just, it was just really what we needed at the time, just to know that we were surrounded by people who cared and were there for us. I think, but what, when I talked to Michelle McGaffrey about writing for Brick and Elm, what I told her, I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable writing a story that is the typical, oh, I got a scary medical diagnosis. People prayed for me. I went through this process and woohoo, God healed me and now yeah. everything's great because it's not a formula and there's no guarantees. And I think that's where maybe in my faith journey in the past, I felt like there was like a formula where if you pray a certain way, you believe a certain way, you have enough faith, you're going to get this guaranteed result. It's the same way with parents raising their kids. You know, if you do A, B, and C, mm-hmm. you're always going to get X, Y, and Z, you know, and this this guaranteed outcome. And the truth is, life doesn't work that way. Yeah. It just does not. And I felt like if I wrote a story that said, thanks to God, I've been healed and everything's good now, it does a disservice to those people that I know have gone through a very difficult medical challenge, and it didn't turn out good. You know, their loved one didn't make it or still has some serious complications or problems. And that's just not fair to them to say, Woohoo, it worked out yeah. for me. I don't know what happened with you, but hey, it worked out for me. Well, because if that happens, then either you have to re-examine the faith structure that caused you to say this will happen, or you have to explain it away in some way that makes it make sense. And neither of those is a comfortable place. And so often we just we just ignore it and pretend, <laughs> you know, that we, we don't want to think about that. Right. Uh, and, and we just move on and do it again with somebody else. Right. Yeah. So you're right. I think it, it caused me to re-examine a lot of things that I had always, you know, just held to be true, whatever, for whatever reason. And so the story for me is just 
gosh, I appreciated all the people praying for me and reaching out to me and loving us through this time. But what I needed more than anything during that time was just for somebody to say, you know what, I'm here for you no matter what. Mm -hmm. It's not to say, oh, I know God's going to heal you, or I know you're going to get better, because I don't know that, and you don't know that, really. But just to say, I'm here for you. However it turns out, if it all goes downhill from here, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to be here to walk you through this. Those are the kind of friends that I do have, and I'm grateful for. And I think that's the way I would want to communicate it to somebody now that's going through a challenge, is not to give them you know, the pie in the sky, false hope. Oh, God's going to make everything okay. It's like, whatever, you know, we make our requests known to God through prayer, and then we just walk it out, however it turns out, Mm -hmm. you know? I think what that says to me is that illnesses and the human condition and relationships and, and even the religious component of it, like those are all a little more complex than we like to think they are. Yes. And that it's not it might be really easy to just throw a Bible verse at you and feel like I've done my duty. Now I said, I've, I've prayed for you and that's all I need to do. But like to really walk alongside you, to be there for you, like that takes a commitment beyond knowing a verse from the Bible or knowing a, a platitude to say to somebody who's sick. Yes. And that's where you really found the value is, is in those friendships. Yes, I did. And like I said, there were many, many, many people that did that for us. And it just meant the world to us. But um, I, I, again, I want to be sensitive to. It. I have a good friend that has, you know, lost a family member within the last year, and goodness, that's hard. And there's just no easy words to say to just make it all better. Mm-hmm. There's just not. All you can do is just be there for them. Just be there. Given that this is a podcast about Amarillo, I, I want to ask you to kind of close up this section. Um, what this community has meant to you as you've gone through you know, the past few years, Uh, knowing that you just kind of landed here, you know, after having lived in a whole lot of different places. And then once you planted, like you were here, you know, for a long time, what have those relationships meant to you that you've gained through church or through work or, or through those friendships? They're just, you know, the best people in the world. And people always say, you know, Amarillo, why do we live here? You know, the weather is terrible, but you know, there's nothing pretty in our scenery, but we stay for the people. And I just have to agree, it's it's true. It's just the people are just the best, best kind of people. And um, yeah, I value those friendships more than anything I could say. I don't know if that really answered your question, but... <laughs> I, think, I think it works. <laughs> this episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches, which has three locations in Amarillo. Jimmy John's is a national sandwich chain, but all three of the Amarillo locations are owned and operated by an Amarillo resident, Charles D'Amico, who you might have heard as a podcast guest back in early 2022. You can find Jimmy John's locations downtown near the ballpark, on Western near I-40, on Sancy near I-40. All of them offer drive through delivery, and catering, and they're here to serve Amarillo residents. Thanks to the locally owned Jimmy John's for sponsoring the show. Okay, I'm back with Kelly Bullard. Kelly, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a kerosene lantern that was created for the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railway, which reached Amarillo in 1901. That was a big moment for Amarillo when that 
uh, railroad connected it to uh, other parts of the country. Uh, so you can see that lantern. You can learn more about that history at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question is, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? You know, what I really hope for, Jason, is a greater diversity in our population and also more of our residents embracing and celebrating that diversity. So um, I know that Brick and Elm Magazine had a feature about this mm-hmm. last fall, and um, I, I agree. Amarillo is becoming more diverse than ever, and that really is a good thing. And it makes us a lot more interesting. It just I, I personally love hearing people's stories that come from different backgrounds and just finding out their life experiences that are so much different than mine and celebrating those things. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes us stronger as a community. I love that our culture is getting more diverse, and I just hope to see more of that. I spoke recently to Kevin Carter um, for the podcast, and he's with the Emerald Economic Development Corporation, and he talked about diversity in industry and the economy and how when you have a lot of different businesses that makes the economy more resilient, makes it stronger. I think the same is true just if you have a lot of different kinds of people living here, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's uh, people in – Blue-collar jobs, people in white-collar jobs, people from other countries, people of other races, like that kind of diversity when it's not a monoculture, but it has all these different pieces. That does make it a more interesting community, a more uh, sustainable community, I think. Yes, totally agree. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to say it. Coffee places. Okay. Um, I, over the years, I have loved seeing the growth of like Palace Coffee and, you know, roasters here locally, um, Cliffside Coffee. I mean, it's I fully love and enjoy and embrace all of that. But here just lately, have you noticed all these little coffee places popping up on every corner? And I'm thinking, goodness, how are we going to support yeah. all these coffee places? You wonder how sustainable it is. Yeah. I, I, I guess time will tell and we'll figure out, you know, if there's that many coffee drinkers in Amarillo. I mean, if we can sustain all the Tex-Mex restaurants we have <laughs> or all the Thai places we have, I feel yeah. like coffee's probably okay. Yeah. Because um, I drink a lot of coffee. I, I consume more coffee than I do Thai food. Um, so maybe maybe sure. it's all right. Yeah. People like me keep them in business. <laughs> okay. What does this area not have enough of? I would say just through that brief time that I was at Bivens Point, which was about a year and a half, I think we're lacking in quality care for seniors that have are in the middle income range. Okay. So there's the people who are low income and can qualify for assistance, et cetera, et cetera, right. that get decent care. And then there's the ones who can afford to self-pay for the quality care. But there's a big margin in between of people from what I talked to families when I was there at Bivens that they don't have the same options because they don't have they don't qualify for the assistance, but they don't have the money to pay for self-pay for this care. And that can get really, really expensive. It can. Yes. Yes. So I, I think there's a gap there. I think that's probably true. And, you know, you you see that there are a lot of, you know, assisted living places Mm -hmm. locally. There's a lot of 24-hour nursing care services, but that's a population that's just going to continue to get bigger and bigger. Yes. Uh, And so if it's not a problem now, like it it may be a bigger problem in the future. Yes, I think so. I think it'll have to be addressed at some point. 
Okay, when you talk to outsiders about Amarillo, what do you talk about? I talk about Paladura Canyon because it's one of my favorite places. And um, it's just so unique here in this area that it's the second largest canyon in the United States next to Grand Canyon. And a lot of people haven't heard of it. And it's just still surprising to me how many people don't know about it and just all it has to offer, just the beautiful scenery, all the hiking trails, biking trails. It's just a great place. The thing I I always think about when people talk about it being the second largest canyon, I think, yeah, that's true. But like, it's really hard to hike down into the Grand Canyon and hike back out or to get down in it and explore. Like it's, it takes a real effort. And in Paladero, you can just drive right down there. You can hike a trail out and go up to the rim. There's, there's all kinds of stuff you can do. Yeah. It's very accessible. You're right about that. What's the most underrated aspect of living in Amarillo? I would say I call it our connectedness. So it's how you can go without seeing somebody for months or even years, run into them at the grocery store, and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're picking up like there's no time passed at all. And we're talking about, you know, things with our families. And it's just we all feel connected. So I think it's like the saying that says it's Amarillo is one of the biggest small towns you could ever be a part of. And I think that's what it is. We all feel connected. I think that's true. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Okay, that was a tough one. Um, But I'm going to go with Yum Yum Hibachi. Okay. Have you had that one before? I have not. Okay, it is really, really good. Good hibachi food. Is it a food truck? Yes. Where do they set up? Uh, I knew you were going to ask me that. And it's um, typically out in the parking lot of a landscape company that's out on South Coulter, maybe? Okay. <laughs> Off McCormick. It's okay, so like, it's way out yeah. south of town. Yeah, I know you live sort of in that direction. Yes, so. that's where they typically okay. are. So you'll have to check it out. So there's a there's a, a hibachi food truck that's near Hodgetown pretty regularly Okay, on uh, Buchanan Street. And I've eaten at that one, uh, but I did not know there was uh, another one within that category. And yes. there's probably more than that. that I'm sure there are, but of. yeah, look them up on social media. Okay. Yum, yum. That's good to know. Yes. What's your favorite building in Amarillo? I am going to go with the historic Bibbins House at 10th and Polk. Okay. And the reason I love that so much is when I was a teenager, which just tells you how long ago this was, uh, it was the public library. That's right. Yeah, it was the Amarillo Public Library. And I used to go there. It was the one library. Books. That was yes. before there were branches or yes. anything like that. Yeah, that was it. That's where we go to get our books. And I'm a big reader, so I'd always love to go to the library. So I have fond memories of that house. Okay, when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? Oh, gosh, this is embarrassing to say. Maybe 15 years ago. Okay. I remember when my kids were growing up one time, we just decided we wanted to drive out there and take a look at it. Probably my kids were preteens. Um, I remember parking, walking out over to the Cadillacs, going, hmm, okay, and then walked back to the car and left. All right. <laughs> so obviously we weren't so super impressed. We didn't spray paint or do any of that stuff. Well, and it's come a long way in 15 years, yes, too. Like there's has. a little more infrastructure there. There's a, a caliche road, gravel road to get to it, some food trucks and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's uh, maybe a little bit more impressive. I need to give it another visitors. chance. Yes. That concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Okay. I am going to go with uh, Land Shark Burgers. Okay. Have you heard of them? I have. I've never eaten one, but I know of uh, the restaurant or the 
hut, I guess, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and it always has live music there in the summer. That's it. Yes. And uh, the owners, Brian and Brenda, have just really taken it to a new level. It's right out close to where I live mm-hmm. also. So I drive by it all the time. But yeah, live music all summer long. Just great burgers and tater tots, cheese curds. Have you had cheese curds? I have had fried cheese curds okay. at Crush and some places like that. So. Yes, they're amazing. Okay. And like you said, live music all summer long. They just announced on Facebook a couple of days ago that they're expanding. They're um, going to build some shade shelters because it was pretty hot out there yeah. last summer. They call themselves the largest beachfront restaurant in Amarillo. Okay. So they have a sand area. They have, you know, games for the kids. Um, it's just a great place. It's one of those places that is well known by a particular community in Amarillo. So if you live south of town, if you yes. live sort of out in that rural uh, part of the, the city, but like if you don't go out there, you don't even drive by it. Right. And so it's passionately known by a small segment of the population, and a lot of people don't even know about it. Yes, but boy, this last summer, I mean, the crowds were pouring in because they have all the good local bands that will come out there. So if you look them up on, on Facebook or social media, you can see what their schedule is for the summer. And I'm just a firm believer in, yeah, these people are the real deal. I okay. really like it. Good recommendation. Kelly yes. Bullard, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I Thanks, appreciate Jason. It. I appreciate it too. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Kelly for doing the interview. You can read her recent Brick and Elm article. It's called Lucky Me at brickandelm.com. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Gott Wittenberg Emerson, Jimmy John Sandwiches, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you, so thank you for listening, as well as the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 284. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.